This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c Welcome to this episode. I am doing a mother's message for NICU Awareness Month, where I'm interviewing mothers who have had their children in the NICU, talking to them about their NICU experience, things that they didn't know, things that they did know. And I'm so excited to welcome Erin onto this episode, talking about full-term babies in the NICU, because sometimes the unexpected happens and we often think that only preterm babies are in the NICU, but that's quite not true. Um, So welcome to the podcast, Erin. Hi, Dr. Mona. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad. Thank you for connecting. Um, Tell me just a little bit more about yourself and a little bit about your story with your child. Sure. Um, So thanks again. Um, I'm really happy to be able to share our story. Uh, As you alluded to, sometimes the unexpected happens. And a full-term baby with a fairly smooth pregnancy for us. Um, Our son, Sam, was born at 40 weeks and a day. Everything seemed to be going great, and he eventually ended up in the NICU. Um, Our labor was about six and a half hours um, from start to finish. So, you know, not terribly too short, but not too long either. Um, But our total time pushing was less than 10 minutes, so fairly quick um, amount of time in the birth canal for him, which seemed to be the reason or the suspected reason that he ended up with the diagnosis of what's called transient tachypnea of the newborn or TTN. Uh, So had no idea it was a thing, Um, was completely, I, I don't like to use blindsided, but kind of blindsided by the events that unfolded. Um, Our labor and delivery went smooth. His APGAR scores were good after delivery. He came with me to the postpartum unit Uh, The rounding pediatrician came, looked at him, said he was doing great. He was feeding well. So we were able to kind of nap, cuddle, um, feed him, hang out for probably about six and seven hours. Um, And then the bedside nurse came in. They were going to get some of his labs done. Um, And we started noticing foaming at the mouth and an increased respiratory rate um, with Sam. And the nurse was, thank goodness she was there, first of all. I'm not sure we would have known exactly what to do um, or even known that it was abnormal to begin with. Eventually, I'm sure we would have noticed and called somebody, but it was kind of slowly developing, um, not something that was initially completely alarming to us since we had never experienced it with our older son. Um, So it was kind of out of the blue for us. And he 
was eventually taken down to the nursery, um, monitored there, um, lots of phone calls back and forth to the pediatrician on call. Um, we were told he was only going to be in there for a pretty short time and, um, it kept getting extended, um, mm-hmm. extended again. And eventually we were told that, um, they were going to have a NICU consult and then the NICU, uh, nurse practitioner came and did a consult. Um, he was released back to us for some skin to skin time, which I'm so grateful for. Um, it was so nice to have that time and, he was eventually admitted to the NICU um, because of his increased respiratory rate and respiratory distress. Uh, and they wanted to rule out, um, of course, infection mm-hmm. um, and anything else that could be going on with him. Yeah. And it's, you know, that unexpected is so hard, right? You said it perfectly. Like you had a healthy pregnancy, everything seemed fine. And also baby was fine initially. And then of course you started noticing that foaming at the mouth. And, you know, many times, you know, I do round in the newborn nursery, um, seeing the babies who are with their parents um, that are quote unquote healthy. And, you know, sometimes parents want to be discharged early. Like they're like, Hey, I want to go home. It's been like 12 hours. And I say, you know what? No, we need to keep you at least, you know, most hospitals, 36 hours. Um, Sometimes we do finagle a 24 hour discharge, but it's for these kind of things, right? There are things that we like to monitor. It doesn't mean that this is going to happen. And it's the common thing, but it is something I do see. Um, term babies, TTN, what Erin's talking about is, like she said, transient to kidney of the newborn, just retain fetal fluid. So um, fluid in the lungs, it just is there and it causes difficulty breathing and it is well managed in an ICU setting. Tell me, how long was uh, your son in the ICU for? So he was born at 7, 12 a.m. Um, mm-hmm. All of this went on. He went to the nursery for a few hours, back and forth, some skin time, um, thought maybe it would resolve. And then we had this like sudden NICU admission, probably around somewhere between 6 to 8 p.m. Can't remember exact timing. I could look at the paperwork, but um, don't have it in front of me. Um, so he was there for about 48 hours total in the NICU, but between 48 and 72 hours in the hospital. So... Yeah, Um, just a two day stay in the NICU, which we're so, so grateful for. But it was still a little bit scary, did not expect it at all. And to be honest, didn't really know that that was a possibility of him ending up in the NICU when this all started. So it was a little bit wild. And we were trying to get out within 24 hours because we don't have family nearby. My sister was in town, thank goodness, um, watching our older son. But Well, that's exactly why I wanted to do this episode. And I have you on and then I'm hoping to have obviously another mother on as well, because every experience is so unique. And you said it perfectly, like that you were so grateful that it was only two days, but it's still two days. I mean, it's still the NICU. I mean, there's obviously going to be a lot of emotions and a lot of what is going on. What is this? Is he going to be okay? I mean, that all is going to happen, whether your baby's in the NICU for a couple days or, you know, a long period. So totally understand that. I mean, when Ryan was in the NICU, everyone's like, oh, well, you know, people on social will be like, oh, well, we didn't have it as bad. I'm like, there's no competition on like, who has it worse or anything like who's in the NICU longer. It's, hey, it's an experience. I mean, I can attest to that too. It was not the ideal experience that I think any parent would want. Um, what are some things that you weren't prepared for, for being a NICU parent for those few days? I think the biggest one for us was not completely understanding why our son was critical. It sounds in hindsight, maybe silly to say, but in the moment, um, there was a lot to process. And very quickly, like we said, things were fine and he was doing well for the first, you know, four or five hours of his life here. Um, And then all of a sudden it was, okay, he can't eat um, when you have a respiratory rate that high. 
they just can't function. And maybe you can explain better how to be able to eat um, when they're breathing that fast. Um, so it was like the biggest one for us. We just couldn't process it fast enough to really understand this was all so smooth. Um, what's going on, right? Um, and then for me as a mother, and I know I'm sure many NICU families have to kind of grieve this or experience this, but having to sleep separated um, yeah. for my new baby was probably the hardest thing for me. I had a pretty good recovery. So again, very grateful that I was well enough to go back and forth in the NICU um, after a few hours, generally by myself, um, didn't necessarily need to be transported. So grateful for that. Um, but it is a lot when you're trying to go and catch a quick nap um, or pump or eat because you do have to take care of your own healing as well. Um, so for me, that was really hard hearing the crying babies on the postpartum unit and not yeah. having my son with me. Um, I will say two things that really helped with that were bringing his fleece blanket that we had brought to the hospital back and forth to the NICU um, and to postpartum. Um, and we happened to have a portable sound machine with us. So that was super helpful um, and kind of helped drown out the noise when I wanted to try and nap. Um, yeah. Oh, I felt the same way, Erin. I mean, the baby cries. Um, oh, man, it triggers. I mean, when you can't have your baby, and you just want your baby to cry next to you. I mean, you don't want them to cry. Does that make sense? But you're like, I just want my baby to be near me, and I can take care of my baby. Um, that is spot on. Um, and then the other thing that was really hard for me, I don't know if your hospital had that was the lullaby music. When a baby's born, no, there's like a goodness. lullaby. Yeah, there's lullaby music. Um, and for me, maybe because my experience wasn't joyful, the, what we went through, it's like, I didn't get to see him for 12 hours. People are celebrating. You're like, that's great. But like, I just want people to understand that I'm like really sad right now. Like, I'm just like, like, it's actually okay to be sad and that this lullaby music is not helping me right now. Um, but you're right on about the baby cries. I don't think people realize that. And there's nothing that those people can do differently. It's just an awareness of like, hey, this is really triggering for me right now. I got to figure out what I can do. I love your tip about the white noise machine. That's awesome. Like that is so helpful um, because it really can just help, you know, you need to get that rest and kind of focus on what you need to do to get back to baby and then obviously get out of the hospital. Yeah, completely. And I absolutely would have been triggered even with a joyous <laughs> delivery. Yeah. So I truly cannot imagine that feeling that you had. Uh, but I do know it's definitely something sensitive and had previously worked, you know, in and around medical centers that, that did that in the labor and delivery and postpartum units. And it is something that seems pretty benign, but could definitely be triggering. I totally see that. When you left to go home, was there any times that you thought back to the time in the NICU, like in terms of like things that would happen at home, breathing issues, like anything that would trigger some of the events that would happen back in the hospital? Uh, yes. Um, yeah. In fact, pretty recently, um, older brother is still in daycare um, mm -hmm. and we're grateful for daycare, but he um, brings home lots of viruses and this summer is something special. There's lots circulating, as yeah. um, you've mentioned, and lots of kind of scarier viruses. Um, so older brother was sick and then do the best you can to keep them separated, um, but that's not always possible. And so Sam ended up getting sick and I started noticing some of those retractions just a couple of weeks ago with him and was very grateful our pediatrician could get us in um, and she was able to administer a steroid 
for him pretty quickly within a couple hours of when we noticed that he seemed to respond well to it. And we didn't end up in the ER like we thought we were going to. Um, But it was scary. It was triggering. And um, I could feel the anxiety peaking for sure. Oh, yeah, there is an absolute medical anxiety that is created for all parents. But I think when you have an experience in the NICU and you've seen your child on any oxygen support, intubation, IVs, anything that's being aiding your child in those early months, right? So when you go home, things are good. Your baby is recovered, quote unquote, like things are great. Those illnesses and things are truly going to trigger you. And I think, again, this point of this episode is just to understand that that's common. That doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just understanding that, hey, you want to be careful. We had it happen for Ryan when he got his first fever and first illness. He had croup, but his NICU wasn't related to respiratory stuff. But oh my gosh, like I literally got visual flashbacks when I would walk into his room of like him being hooked up to the monitors. Like I would take myself back there and I was like, "Mm -mm, I don't want to take myself back there because it wasn't the most great of times. But it's so important that we kind of recognize that. And, you know, whenever a parent goes through a NICU experience, whether it's a short period or long period, those triggers are so important to recognize. And it could be in the most surprising of ways, you know, and I think when I say recognize it, just recognize it that it's not anything bad and just realize, okay, well, how am I going to move through this? Was there anything that helped you in terms of when that happened? Like, I know you said you went to your child's clinician, but is there anything else that kind of gave you a little bit more peace of mind in those moments? So exactly. Um, knowing what to look out for. Now I feel like I am more prepared if he were to contract something again and sent him into respiratory distress. um, I know what to look out for. I would have never known that with my older son. So in some weird twist, I'm grateful for that experience because we had a good outcome for him. Um, And I don't mean that to sound insensitive, but I love our pediatrician's office. um, And I think you guys would be great friends. Um, but she, you know, I call them and I consult with them, right? Um, I trust them exclusively and having, you know, the peace of mind to say, Hey, he's borderline here. Let's get him in. Cause he was just a little over two months when that happened. Um, said, let's get him in. Let's double, triple check. Um, because I don't want you to have to, you know, think that you didn't do the right thing. Um, and so they always kind of, you know, back me up there and, To me, it's really important to have that relationship with your children's pediatrician. Absolutely. The medical community support is so important. Did you feel communication and support was good in the NICU, like with the NICU doctors and nurses? Absolutely. Um, They're something special. Our NICU clinical team was just amazing. There's not much else I can say other than that. I felt like they were very clear in explaining Sam's status, you know, what we had ahead for him, um, what he needed to complete before they could discharge him. Um, We're always open to my questions and it's busy in the NICU, um, but they explain things very well. And I felt like they were the best advocates for our family. Um, And that was really comforting. I've always had a very special place in my heart for NICU staff. I mean, even through residency, I mean, the work that they do um, to be able to communicate with parents when the acuity is so high for such early in a child's life. I mean, obviously, these are all newborns, um, full term, preterm. It doesn't matter. I mean, it is such a hard job. And I loved being a part of the NICU rotations in residency. I didn't love being a NICU parent, but I obviously so appreciate what they do. And I will always say that if you ever find yourself in the NICU, I assure you that you're going to be supported by an amazing team of the best nurses and the best doctors because NICU nurses are also, I think, 
cream of the crop. Any ICU nurse, I think, is phenomenal. Any nurse, but I mean, they really know how to, you know, talk to you, support you, and that's just so great. I'm so happy that you felt supported. What do you think, um, in general, people don't realize about the NICU experience? You know, were there any assumptions from family members or anything? Um, anything additional that you'd want to add? Yeah, I think something people may not realize about the NICU experience or being a NICU mom is really the constant need to advocate and coordinate care for not only yourself as a new mother, but for your child who, like you said, it's in a high acuity setting. Um, it is completely overwhelming for me. It is not something that I expected to have to do. I do feel like I always had to be in two places at once, Um, you know, either on postpartum trying to explain what was going on um, or down in the NICU trying to figure out, you know, what was next um, or what was even happening. It's just a lot, right? Uh, Between myself and my husband, it just seemed like a lot. And I think he felt like his heart was in two places um, too. And really a third with our son at home. Um, That was really hard for me. Um, I felt like I always needed to be in the NICU or, you know, there were times where I knew I needed to go back to my room to sleep or take care of myself in other ways. It just, the tugging, the constant tugging of feeling like you needed to be in two places um, was really something I didn't expect. Um, and I don't think a lot of people realize that that coordination may not be so concerted, you know, in some places. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just 2 minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with factor meals because they're ready in two minutes. No shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious factor meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Absolutely. And you were talking about advocacy. Um, Did you find that you had to advocate in the NICU for your son? And how did you do that? Or do you have any like suggestions on what worked for you or what you wish you would have done differently? Or did everything kind of go okay? 
I didn't feel quite like I had to advocate so much for my son um, in Mm. the NICU. I felt like I was maybe advocating, knowing that I may get discharged before him. I felt like I was always advocating for just a little more time. Yeah. Um, And understanding there are limitations to our health systems um, in the United States that it's not quite as simple. Of course, COVID restrictions, we happen to be kind of in that sweet spot in mid-May where things were looking really optimistic. Um, So I think maybe, you know, we had some things offered to us that other families maybe a few months earlier weren't. Um, But I did feel like it was going to be hard if he had to stay long, much longer than I did. And they were originally looking at that, right, that he was going to stay at least a day longer, um, if not more than me. But I do felt like our NICU staff really, really did try and advocate for us. Um, You know, once I asked the right questions and knew what to ask. So it felt like I was advocating for me more than my son. Um, Yeah. And that was hard. Yeah. And that's exactly how it felt like for me. Like I felt like the NICU was on kind of good autopilot. There were some instances where I did kind of ask them because I have medical expertise and I'm like, does he really need this? Like, you know, he was there for um, other reasons, but yeah, there was some things that I had to talk to him about, but it really, like you said, it's that advocating for me and getting down to the NICU and, you know, I need to make sure I get to touch time, touch time, meaning, you know, like being able to interact with baby at certain times when the nursing um, schedule is kind of going as such that advocacy piece. I think we forget that when we become moms, um, we tend to think of so much of our children and the advocacy we have to do for them, but we forget to advocate for ourselves as moms. And that starts from the moment you have a baby, whether it's in the NICU or the newborn nursery. I mean, the things that you feel like you may need, the emotional, physical support. I mean, it all comes down to that. And the NICU does add a different layer of, whoa, what do I need to do here? You know? Yeah. And one thing I didn't mention was I knew I wanted to try to breastfeed my son um, Mm -hmm. since it was going well before all of this presented. And I knew I wanted to try and continue. Um, I don't think my voice would have been as loud with my first. Um, I'm grateful, like in some weird twist of fate, right, that this happened with my second, um, that I was able to use my voice and I knew who to reach out to. Um, I had kind of been through that and knew that I needed a lactation consult. I knew I needed that. Um, I knew I needed to make sure that I expressed that to NICU that I wanted to try and get him to the breast when I could and when he was ready. They knew that and they were very supportive and it made me feel taken care of. Just like you said, it kind of felt like for me, I was the whole time trying to advocate to just be able to stay a little bit longer. Um, Is there a way I could stay until at least midnight if he were to get discharged the next morning? Kind of have a, a home base, if you will. Oh, totally. It's so nice connecting because it's literally the same, even though it's a a different situation, you're in a different place, the same exact conversation that I was having, like, hey, can I like extend this? Like, what are my options? What can you guys say? Totally. I know there are situations where there absolutely are where the mother has to leave before their child. Um, For us, I was coming close to that, but we were able to stay together. And I, I'm not happy that I had to stay because I ended up having complications, but it's like, you definitely like want that. There's just that it gives you some security and stability in an otherwise time where you're like, not sure what's going on, you know? 100%. Um, any other final message you would have for, you know, people who may be experiencing the NICU experience or maybe someone who's listening who will never experience it? What would you want to say to everyone? I'd say that this is really true in all aspects of your care or your children's care. Um, and just empower yourself to ask questions. Um, 
ask, ask, and ask until everything makes sense to you. It is so empowering knowing and understanding, right, the status of your child's care or your care and the care plan for yourself and child. Like, right, what do you have to accomplish? What needs to be done in order for your discharge to happen or for baby's discharge to happen? Um, For us, that was one thing that helped us get in sync um, discharge for us. Uh, We knew his last round of antibiotics was going to be sometime in the evening and they wanted to discharge him the next morning, but they were willing to just discharge him in the evening. Um, And I don't know if that would have happened if I didn't feel empowered to ask. And I credit that to a lot of maybe the healthcare providers in our family and having worked in a clinical setting for so long that I wasn't afraid to ask those questions. Um, It's intimidating being in the NICU. It's intimidating and tiring when you're healing yourself, but ask, ask until it makes sense. That would be the one message that I would want to deliver to NICU parents. Oh, I love how you said that. Ask until it makes sense. And it has to do with also how you consume information. Like you said, like if it doesn't make sense to you, maybe it's right, but it's just not being communicated in the right way to you. And that's not anyone's fault. That's we need to know what the best way. And I just love that advice. Oh, this was so awesome. I am so grateful that we could talk about so many of the things that you went through and the experience. Um, I know this is, again, just going to help so many people if they find themselves in similar situations or maybe just to create some empathy if they have a friend going through um, similar things. So thank you again for joining me today. No, thanks, Dr. Rona. I really appreciate it and look forward to hearing everyone else's stories. Now I have Sarah, who is a mother of a term baby who was in the NICU, and we're going to talk about her experience with her baby. Remember, every one of these experiences is so unique. And even all the episodes I put together for NICU Awareness Month, you're never really going to get every experience that exists out there. So I wanted to have a couple moms on the episode to talk about their experience having a full-term baby in the NICU. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's so cool. (laughs) Well, no, I'm so happy. You know, I put out a request for my Instagram followers because I really wanted to have mothers come on or fathers, but obviously I have a lot of women followers um, talk about their experiences because I really feel like by sharing our experiences, we can help others who may be going through something similar, or even if you're not going through something similar, how we can connect with people and just understand what we go through as moms and how different our experiences are. But at the end of the day, we're all moms and we all want the same thing for our children to have them be happy, healthy, and thrive on their own accord. So this is the purpose of these um, Mother's Message episodes. So thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I mean, your story is what kind of kept me going in the early days. So I wanted to kind of pay it forward. And as you know, being a NICU mom can be a little bit lonely and isolating. So to hear someone else's story um, and your son's story was very similar to mine, it kind of gave me hope that like my daughter could be okay. So thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. That means so much. And I, again, just tell me, you know, for everyone listening, tell me a little bit about your story and your daughter's story. Sure. So um, as you said, my name is Sarah. I'm 33 from New Jersey and my daughter, Aubrey, is actually turning one tomorrow. So big day. Oh, Um, happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. This is like perfect timing. You know, I've Mm -hmm. been going through all the emotions lately anyway. So I was like, you know, this is a great opportunity to kind of share my story and hopefully help someone else feel a little bit less alone. So um, like you said, I had a full-term baby. I had like a perfect pregnancy. Everything was great. And then I was 40 weeks and six days. So I had an induction scheduled for the next morning. And then I went into spontaneous labor and it kind of just like escalated really quickly. My contractions went from like 15 minutes to every minute within an hour. So like something kind of felt a little off from the beginning. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I went to the hospital and throughout my labor, um, I kind of told my husband in the morning, like, I feel like I have the flu. Like, I feel like something's not really right. Um, but I've never been pregnant before. So I was like, I guess this is labor. And, you know, they took my temperature at the hospital and they didn't think that, you know, they, nothing came up. Um, and it wasn't till like five or six hours later that they realized that I had 103 temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, we still don't, to this day don't know like what happened or why I got the fever or if there was infection or anything. But basically my fever, I guess, caused my daughter to be in distress during labor. Mm-hmm. So her heart rate was fluctuating for like a lot of the labor. Um, and my OBGYN was monitoring it. And, you know, I remember saying to her, like, at what point do we take her out? Like, what, at what yeah. point do we do C-section? Like, I was really scared. I didn't know really what was going on. And she was like, well, you know, I don't want to see this happening for like a few more hours, but you know, you're progressing nicely. So let's keep going. So yeah. long story short, I got to the point where I was fully dilated. So she wanted me to push rather than do a C-section. I ended up pushing for over two hours. Um, and the whole time Aubrey's heart rate was going up and down, fluctuating, um, not a good situation. Mm-hmm. Finally, she was born. Um, we had a pediatrician on call because my OB was nervous that we would need extra help. Um, Aubrey came out, she wasn't breathing. Basically they put her on my stomach, cut the cord and then like whisked her away and everything kind of went really quickly from there. All I could hear was like the nurses trying to revive her. She wasn't mm. crying, she wasn't breathing. They were doing the suction. Um, I could just hear them like hitting her back, trying to get her to breathe. And then it was like from a movie. It was like, cold white, cold white, call Dr. Mays and get him up here. And it was pretty crazy. And then they got the NICU doctor up. He intubated her. um, And basically they whisked her away to the NICU. And, uh, you know, about an hour or so later, the NICU doctor came to us and said, you know, we want to do this treatment for her called like it's hypothermic cooling treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, So they often do that for babies who have oxygen loss at birth, which is what happened with my daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's like, you have to get them on it within six hours and it can really dramatically reduce damage from oxygen loss. And it basically just keeps the baby in a hypothermic state for about 72 hours and then slowly warms them up. Um, so we ended up doing that treatment. Um, all in all, she was in the NICU for 10 days. You know, the next day she was extubated and it seemed really great. Like she was aware she was sucking on the pacifier. Everything seemed great. And then by the afternoon, she started having seizures. So that um, was over 24 hours, right? Yeah. So that was in under 24 hours. Oh, yeah. Actually. Wow. Yeah. This is exactly like my story. This I is know. Wow. When I, Dr. Mona, when I like heard your story, like she was born in Nikki Uranus month. So I must have seen your post and I went back wow. and I read all of your posts and I just sat there sobbing like, oh my God, this is literally what happened to Aubrey. Like it just wow. was the first time I felt like there was someone who understood. So oh my thank gosh. you again. I really just like, and then I listened to your podcast explaining your birth story. And I just sat there with my husband, like chill, like, oh my, oh my God, this is literally like, you know how you said you kind of had a premonition. Like mm-hmm. I am super anxious. Like I went to therapy before we conceived because I was so nervous something was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then like the weeks leading up to the birth, I just had this like gut wrenching feeling that something mm. was going to happen. And like, you know, not that I put it into the universe, but like, I, I don't really know. Maybe I just yeah. like knew something was going to happen, but yeah, just like crazy, the similarities. But yeah, so she started having seizures the next day. So the morning she was great. We were like, wow, okay, maybe it's not that bad. And then by the afternoon, we luckily have not missed any seizures. I know that you were holding your son and that must have been horrible. Yeah. Um, but we did not witness any seizures. Then we weren't in the room at the time. Um, so they immediately got her hooked up to an EEG. Um, they had given her some Ativan. They realized it wasn't controlling the seizures. So they've started her on phenobarbital, which is Mm -hmm. like a very strong seizure medicine. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so the, and they had to reintubate her because her vitals dropped while she was going through the seizures. And yeah. the EEG revealed that she was having subclinical seizures like uh, every few seconds, particularly on the left side of her brain. Um, so she basically had uncontrollable seizures for almost two days straight. Um, and I remember like getting pulled to the side by the neurologist um, that Friday night. So she was born on a Wednesday night. That Friday night, he pulled us to the side and was like, listen, I'm concerned. And like, mm-hmm. you never want to hear that from any yeah. doctor, especially not a NICU doctor. He was like, we can't control her seizures. Um, and he was like, you know, we're going to wait overnight. And if we can't control her seizures, we're going to add another medicine in addition to it. And then the next morning, Saturday morning, we went down to see her and he was like, so her brain patterns are starting to look a little bit better. I want to hold off. And then her seizures just stopped. Like <gasps> they never had to add more medicine. They just stopped. Wow. Um, yeah, like crazy. Because, you know, EEGs, like it's all like subjective, right? Yeah, like everybody yeah. reads it kind of how they read it. And he's like, I feel like it's going to get better. So he just held off and like she just stopped seizing. So the last time that we know that she had a seizure was three days after her birth. And she was on seizure medicine for a while after that. So, you know, we didn't get to like touch her or hold her for six days, which was like, wow, wait, crazy. So when did you see her? Like how many hours of life were you able to see her? So we saw her at, I think about like 30 minutes on the way to the recovery room. They rolled me into the NICU and they let me see her, but they wouldn't let me touch her. And then they brought me to the recovery room. And then right after that, the doctor asked if he could put her on the cooling treatment. And then we didn't see her again until the next morning. And then since she was on the cooling treatment, we couldn't touch her at all because we had to keep her body temperature regulated. So I couldn't touch her for three days. And then I couldn't hold her for another six because she was intubated again. um, And you can't, we couldn't take her. So um, anyway, yeah, that was like our, you know, NICU stay. And then when she was extubated at day six, she kind of like just made this like miraculous recovery. Like all the doctors and nurses were just like in awe. Like she started drinking milk from a bottle like right away. And then she started nursing like 24 hours after that. And, you know, she obviously has had a long way to go from there, but like, it was just a really good sign that she like her stuck in her swallow were intact. Like those were really, really good signs. So yeah, that's like the nitty gritty of like the NICU stay. And then we were discharged and, we left with her on phenobarbital, which is like a very sedative um, drug. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we kind of were just like left, like sent from the NICU with like no instructions. I mean, no parent gets instructions, right? But we kind of were just like, uh, we have no idea what we're doing. And she was very lethargic. She slept like all the time. She didn't cry. She just was like so sedated. And, you know, this went on for like weeks and weeks and like she wasn't really gaining weight well. So we had to go to the pediatrician a million times. And then when she was about five weeks old, we happened to take her temperature and she was hypothermic. She was like 94 degrees. So we had to go to the ER and then we had a whole other like medical day there. And it was just a lot. And while we were there, I really advocated to get her medicine switched. We were on a plan to already switch wean off of the phenobarbital onto another medicine, but they have to be very careful with it. So it's like a two month process. But while we were in the hospital, I was like, I need to figure out a solution because she's not eating well. She's lethargic. Like this isn't working. Like I understand we have to control the seizures, but like something's got to give. And I basically just like talked to any nurse and doctor who would listen to me. Like I felt like I was constantly being dismissed. And yeah. finally, you know, I called our neurologist and she came to the hospital and she was like, okay, well, if you're going to be here anyway, 
why don't we just do like a cold turkey switch because we can monitor her for the EEG. And like once she switched the medicine, it was like night and day. Like she was like a new kid. Um, she didn't cry. Like wow. babies cry. <laughs> what did what did you get switched to? So we switched her on to Kepra. Yeah. Okay. That's so interesting. Yeah. We were on phenobarbital and then we had to add Kepra so that we could get him off the phenobarbital. And um, it was interesting. Yeah. And it goes to show like just how different babies are because Ryan wasn't sedated like that, but we were warned of that. So of course my pediatrician brain was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen here? Like you said exactly like the feeding, the suck. Those are really important things that we want to see neurologically for any baby who's had any brain involvement at delivery, you know? Mm-hmm. How do you think the medical community could have better supported you through this process? I mean, meaning like even in the NICU, I'd love to talk about like the NICU experience itself, mm-hmm. also just communication, but even like this whole aftermath, like what could have been done better? What was done great in your opinion? Yeah. So this is such a loaded answer for me because we've mm-hmm. had so many medical experiences in this first year, especially the first six months, but mm-hmm. the NICU in and of itself was phenomenal. Like yeah. I really will say that like Aubrey's care in the NICU was top-notch. Her doctors were phenomenal. Her nurses were phenomenal. The communication was really great as far as they can communicate. I think the thing that's difficult for me with hospitals in general is that, you know, there's shift changes, right? So like there's a doctor on for a couple days and then there's a new doctor and like the nurses are changing all the time. So for me, that was the super overwhelming part of like the medical system and that I didn't like, you know, it's like they were great at communicating if we called or asked for updates. Right. But I had to specifically say like, can you call me when the doctor gets in? Like, I want the doctor to call me. Like I felt like this whole process, I was just like begging for information. I was advocating. I was just being that squeaky wheel. And it just makes me wonder like what happens to all these families whose, Mm -hmm. whose parents aren't as assertive or maybe don't have like English as their first language or, you know, there's just so many so many factors. And so Aubrey's NICU care was great. The communication in general was pretty good. Um, I feel like my care was appalling as a mother. Um, like I felt like I wasn't listened to. I felt like she should have been a C-section and you know, hindsight's 2020. You're never going to know. Like maybe she also would have not been breathing with a C-section. I know that happened to you. Like Mm -hmm. you never know, but I felt like I was dismissed and my OB never followed up with me afterwards. Like we ran into her in the NICU five days later and she was like, oh, I meant to call you. Mm. And we were like, really? Cause okay. You know, like, so I felt like my care wasn't great. And like at my six week appointment, I went to the same practice because I just didn't have anywhere else to yes. go. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's like the same thing that happened to me. Yeah. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> and I, I saw a different doctor and he didn't even ask me about Aubrey. He did oh, not even ask goodness. me how she was. Oh. And he knows. And the best part is my mother-in-law used to work in their office for 30 years. She knew wow. all of them. And yeah. not, they, he didn't even ask me like, how's the baby doing? How are you doing? You know, the general depression screening and stuff. And it's like, of course I'm depressed. Yeah, my baby was just helped? in the NICU. Do you think that would have helped if they just absolutely. at least? Yes, I agree absolutely. with you. Absolutely, I, I don't need you to get down on your knees and apologize. Right. I just right. need you to acknowledge what happened to us. Exactly, and the yes. fact that like my OB didn't even acknowledge mm-hmm. it, and like she, we kind of like caught her with her tail between her legs because mm-hmm. we ran into her in the NICU, and she was like, "Oh yeah, I was going to call you." And like, if she had just taken, you yes. know a minute to call me like even when Aubrey was being intubated like in the room with me there she's sewing me up and she's not even acknowledging like I know I think she was trying to distract me but she's trying to like explain to me about my stitches and I'm like what do you like shut up I'm I'm my baby like I I couldn't care less what you're doing and I was still feverish so the whole thing was just like crazy but yes if they had just taken 
a minute to acknowledge me as a person and like what happened to us. And like, yeah, you don't need to grovel. But like, even when I questioned her, because a big part of this that was really hard for me is that we still don't have answers, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I still don't know what happened. I don't know why. They never even tested my placenta. They never did any, they never gave me an antibiotic. Like I had a fever, but I was never treated as if I had an infection. It was just like bizarre. Um, and she wow. said to me, this is yes. so like our story. This is so yes. crazy. Sarah. I was never, I know wow. it, I'm telling you, I got chill. I was just like wow. crying listening to her podcast. Um, and she, you know what she said to me I, when I was asking her more information, like, well, why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Like you didn't use like a vacuum. You Like it seemed like there was no urgency to get her out. Mm-hmm. And she goes, well, you know, we can't really be Monday morning quarterback. That mm-hmm. is what my OB said to me. Oh, and like, I, I get she was trying to be like, you can't control everything. It's, yes. you know, doctors aren't superhuman. Yes. Like they're humans. Like they, they do what they can with the information they have in the moment. Like, I totally understand that. But it was just such an insensitive thing for her to say to me. Well, that's the thing. I think the reason why I asked you this question is that I, as a medical professional, my husband as a medical professional, we were in that same situation. And you are not a medical professional, correct? No, I'm a child psychologist. Okay, so I'm perfect. not a medical so, professional. Yeah, like, meaning, like hospital life. Okay, right, so right, I, no. but me and my husband, even us knowing, you said this also, even us knowing what happens in a hospital and how we communicate, we knew also that when something goes wrong, we understand as medical professionals that we also can't control everything and sometimes outcomes happen, even mm-hmm. if a person were to control it. But the difference goes down to how you respond when the mistake happened. So as physicians too, if we make a mistake, there is a communication that happens. We call, we talk to the families. We say, you know, I heard this happen. Let's talk about it because it's the right thing to do, not only for you as a physician to learn about, well, what happened in the situation? Sometimes there aren't answers. And I know this, like even 20 months later, we don't have an answer for why I had infected fluid in my abdomen. I still don't know why I'll never know. Okay. And Mm -hmm. it sucks. But I also know that how we respond to that. And that same thing happened to me. I went to the um, OB's office after because I had nowhere else to go. And I didn't have time to find someone else because right. I was like tired and my son had seizures and I was like right. exhausted and I had double surgery. So then I went and it was my OB who delivered Ryan was not the one who followed up with my care after because she went on medical leave right after he was born. And we knew this wow. was going to happen. Oh, okay. Um, I, I knew this was going to happen, but I wanted her to deliver Ryan because I had trusted her. But mm-hmm. then her colleague was the one who took care of us after, and she was the one who was dismissive. But when I went back to my OB, she had no idea what happened. Wow. And I was shocked. And I cried in the office. And I said, look, this is not okay. And I think when we advocate for ourselves, I mean, the take home from this is that you absolutely need to advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. If something's not right, you... Absolutely. And so the educational point here is that if you feel like something's not right with your baby or yourself, and if the nurse isn't listening, you ask to speak to the doctor. If the doctor is not listening, you ask to speak to the charge nurse. If the charge nurse is not listening, you ask to speak to whoever's in charge beyond that. Like you need to make sure. And sometimes I will be honest, it can be nothing that there's nothing wrong, Mm -hmm. but we don't, we don't want to dismiss that if it is something that's wrong. And I rather have a parent go through the checks of like, okay, let me talk to who I need to talk to. And that we do due diligence because that's what happened to us. We are two physicians I knew something was wrong with my body. Ryan's care was fantastic. But like you said, it was my care. I knew something was wrong with my care. Right. And we had to advocate like crazy. And like you said perfectly, what happens to all the people who don't have the educational level, who can't speak English, who don't yeah. know medicine, who don't know how to advocate? And you need that support person, right? Like with COVID, it's like you have to have oh someone with, yeah. there with you because that person might be the one who needs to advocate for you and say, my partner doesn't look good. Something's not right. What are our options? 
Can you yeah. tell us why do you not want to do it? Why is a C-section not? And in the exactly. middle of the moment, yeah. it may not work, but it's so important to voice that because it can also help you in healing after that you tried sure. and did everything and that you were in communication with what the plan of action was. For sure. And that's what I felt like in my labor. You know, I felt like I kept being dismissed when I got to the hospital. I told the nurse, like, I feel like I have the flu or like a fever and she took my temperature. It didn't read, but the only way they got a temperature for me was under my armpit. So mm. the traditional under the mouth, like under the tongue didn't or forehead didn't show up as a fever. And she did give me Tylenol, which is weird, but then they never treated me beyond that. And then I had the chills and they said it was just from the epidural, which maybe it was, but I was feverish for hours before they finally discovered that I had 103 fever. And like, I did ask my doctor, like, at what point do you take her? And like, I feel like I got a lot of like wishy-washy answers and she kept leaving the room. Like, if you have a patient who's baby is in distress like that. Like I get you can't be in the room the whole time, but like mm -hmm. I felt like she just kept leaving and like it, there was no urgency yet. It was urgent enough that she had a pediatrician on call. Like there was a lot of dissonance between like what it seemed like was going on and how she was reacting to it. And I don't know, this was just one example of how, like you said, I urge people to listen to your body. You know, what's happening. Listen to like what you think is happening for your baby. Listen to your gut. Like we had issues after with Aubrey too, when we were in the hospital and we went through like a whole feeding aversion with her and nobody listened to me. I feel like mm -hmm. I spent three months, I spoke to her pediatrician. He kept saying, oh no, it's probably reflux if she doesn't want to eat. And I'm like, no, mm. but she's fine no. when she's not yeah. eating. And he was like, no, no, it's reflux. And we were like, yeah, but if it was reflux, wouldn't she be in pain outside of eating? Like it was literally like we took the bottle away and she would stop crying. And I kept saying, even when we were in the hospital, we saw a feeding specialist. And I said, I think that this is behavioral. And mm. my daughter was only five weeks old. And the feeding specialist said to me, oh, it can't be behavioral because she's too young. And like, I'm a behavioral therapist. Like, yeah. age doesn't matter. So like, but, you know, I also don't know what I don't know, right? Yeah. You're in this unique position where I've never been a parent before. I've never had a baby. So like in my gut, though, I knew something was off. And here we are three, four months later when she's four months old and she had developed a bottle aversion, which is actually very common for NICU babies, just putting that out there, because there's so much of an emphasis on weight gain and getting X amount of milliliters in or X amount of ounces in or going up percentiles on the curve. And, you know, I think it happens a lot more with preemies, but it does happen for full-term babies. And we left the NICU feeling so much pressure to feed her that like we ended up pressuring her to eat. And what was happening is when she was on the phenobarbital, she was so sedated that she was eating great. And then when they took her off yeah. the phenobarbital, she was more aware. So she was like, stop duffing me, mom. Mm. Like you're forcing me to eat. And like, I kept telling people when we were there for the hospital, when she was hypothermic for five days, every single feeding got worse and worse and worse. And she stopped eating basically. And their prerogative is get this baby to eat, which I understand. You have a five week old baby, you need them to eat. But they were just dismissing me saying like, no, it's not behavioral. And I'm like, I'm not saying she's doing it on purpose. I'm saying that there's something about feeding that is upsetting her. So either something gastro or like something is aversive, like we need to figure that out. And I feel like every doctor's appointment, every nurse that I saw, every doctor that I saw, I just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And like nobody listened. And finally, we figured it out on our own. We just were Googling um, like her symptoms. And we came across this random article about bottle aversion by Rowena Bennett. Mm -hmm. And she actually has a book about bottle aversion. And we were like, oh my God, this is it. We read the book and like we turned around her whole bottle version and we switched pediatrician. Um, so that was like something else I wanted to like put out there for people listening. Like 
you don't need to stay with a doctor that you feel unsure about. Like we kept going to this pediatrician over and over again, because you were overwhelmed, right? Like you leave the NICU, you're going to doctor's appointments, sometimes multiple times a week. The last thing you want to do is try to find a whole new practice. And we ended up staying within the same practice, but we were like, our pediatrician's not listening to us. And, you know, I get it. Like you guys only get a few minutes with us every visit, but like, if he had just said like, oh, okay, maybe it is behavioral. I felt like I was going crazy until we found this resource. Um, So like that, you know, just going back to your whole like advocating thing, like advocate for yourself. You can find a new doctor. Just if you think something in your gut is off, like don't let that go. Even my husband sometimes was like, you know, Sarah, you're really anxious. Like just try to like relax. Aubrey's okay. And I was like, no, Alex, like you don't get it. Like this isn't just anxiety. This is like me and my gut feeling like something is off. And sure enough, like it was off and we figured it out and now she's a great eater. But, you know, mom, you know best and you know your baby best. Absolutely. And that's the whole point of this advocacy piece, right? I think parents are worried of, again, like you said, like you don't know what you don't know, but you also know what is not making you feel right about a certain situation. Like you can't deny that feeling. So even if you're wrong, the worst thing is that you voiced it and you did the avenues to make sure you, Mm -hmm. you checked all your boxes and that's not harmful. Right. Like to me, it makes more sense to do that and say, you know what, something doesn't feel right. I can do X, Y and Z and, you know, I'll do this and that versus, okay, I felt something was wrong. I didn't do anything about it. And then you have regret. Like there's never going to be a regret for doing more. If you put it that way, you know, like we're asking for more, you know, Um, I get it. It's hard with the medical community and I'm in that medical community. I understand. But being on the other side has really opened my eyes to as you know, how even the best of doctors, and I love that you said that, even the best of people in certain situations are not perfect for your needs. It doesn't right. mean that that doctor that you let go was not a great doctor for so many people, right? Exactly. I know that. But it means that in that situation, whether it was a couple visits, whether it was many visits, you weren't feeling seen. But that doesn't mean that you won't feel seen by another physician. And that doesn't mean that that doctor wouldn't see or you know be good for another person. It's a relationship. And yeah. you said a, if that relationship's not working, you don't have to stick with it. You don't. Like, there's no reason you have to stick with someone that doesn't make you feel good about your parenting, your physical well being of your child. There are other options and second opinions. I agree with that. Absolutely. What would be something that you don't think people realize about the NICU experience or being a NICU mom? Maybe when you left the NICU, um, things that happened after being in the NICU or what people, family members said or coworkers or, you know, things that just you've heard that you're like, wow. How do people not know this um, about being uh, the reality of being a NICU mom? I think that people don't realize that like, you know, they say a lot of like, you're so strong, you're so brave, like you're super mom, you're superhero. And it's like, we're strong because we have to be like, you know, yeah, we might be strong and brave and resilient people to begin with. But like, when you just label us as like these superhuman people, you fail to see our humanity. And that is something that um, a resource that I love, Dear NICU Mama, uh, Mm -hmm. it's an Instagram account. Um, They shared that quote uh, a couple months ago and it just resonated with me so much because, you know, it's one of those things where people mean well. And I think it also depends on the person. So one person might feel offended to hear that and another person might not. Um, But that's something that I think would be good for people to know is just that like, we're strong because we have to be. And like, you know, we are people too, at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, I think that people also don't realize that it doesn't just end when you go home, right? Like, so some babies are in the NICU for months, like Aubrey was in there for 10 days, but you know, our journey didn't end at 10 days. You know, we were in the hospital two extra times. She's had eight EEGs, like she's had two MRIs, you know, like there's been 
it's just, it stays with you. Yeah. And it doesn't just like end. And I think that's something too, that your trauma and your experience can take a long time to kind of work through. And for a lot of people, it's always going to be there. You know, like it's been a year since Aubrey was in the NICU and we had our traumatic story and I still cry like pretty regularly about it. And it's still difficult for me to watch birth scenes. And it's something that like your healing is going to take as much time as you need it to. And it would be nice for people to understand that. Are you tired of searching Google and ending up in a rabbit hole at 2 a.m. thinking that you're ruining your kid? Stop and visit pedsdoctalk.com. My website is your new Google with a search feature to search all content that I have that is free or available by purchase. And let me tell you, there are a lot of free goodies there, like free printable PDFs for how to handle a choking incident to milestones to monitor in your kid. My website provides information regarding the health and development of your child, including parenting and sleep. My goal is that you stop those middle-of-the-night searches that lead you nowhere but into the land of anxiety. My goal is to guide you to be the confident and calm parent I know that you are. Make sure to visit pedsdoctalk.com and use the magnifying glass to search. Want even more? Make sure to sign up for our newsletter by visiting pedsdoctalk.com newsletter, where you can get the latest and greatest in child health news and parenting tips delivered directly to your inbox. That's pedsdoctalk.com newsletter. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. And just like people just don't understand like how isolating and how lonely it is to be a NICU parent. Like we honestly had so much support. Like our family was wonderful. Our friends were wonderful. Our coworkers and bosses were, you know, phenomenal. So many people brought us food and, and all that. Um, And even with all that support, it was the most lonely time of my life. Yeah. You know, like you come home and like you're pumping in the middle of the night and you know, you have to leave your baby in the hospital. Like, I don't think people understand how gut-wrenching it is to see your child sick and not be able to help them. Oh, lonely is not, I mean, there has to be a word for the loneliness (laughs) of a NICU mom. Like, Mm -hmm. because not only are you lonely because no one else is going through what you were going through at that current moment, but you're also being triggered by the sounds of the hospital, babies crying. I mean, you're, you're being triggered. It's an emotional roller coaster that again, every parent will go through something in their lives that will be that defining moment for them. And I think as a NICU mom, that is going to be your defining moment. I say it full out that not that you're going to have an easy parenting life. That's not what I mean, because parenting is not easy, but you went through something from the beginning that your child was born that is going to really define how you view the world, right? You're going to, you're going to really look at things. You're like, wow, like, I can't believe we went through this. And wow, that was insanely hard. And I can't believe I survived that. Um, And in that moment, though, my goodness, I mean, that loneliness of being in that room, I remember just staring at the clock 
and the nurse would come in. They're like, you don't want to watch TV. You don't want to do anything. I would just stare. I literally would just stare at a wall or the You're like numb. I'm numb. numb. It was numb. And like you said, it was like a movie, right? You feel like you're out of your body. It was an out of body watching. You're watching from above as everything's unfolding. Like when your daughter was, you know, getting the back, the back taps and all that. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, that is exactly like it's slow-mo and it feels like you're out of your body. And the whole time you're not even feeling like you're there. And I think it's, you know, you're, you said you're a psychologist, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, I think it's like almost like a protective mechanism so that you almost can cope better when you feel like you're pulled away. You're like, literally like, okay, this is happening. But is it really happening? Yeah. Like, is this yeah. really reality right now? Like that I'm looking at yep. my child with the cool cap on and all this and like, you know, all this stuff that's happening and you literally like that loneliness that you feel. And I think one of the things that I think people don't realize is it's not like a, your loneliness is because people aren't with you. It's a loneliness that's inside your head. It's a loneliness that exists because you feel so alone in your body and your experience, but you could have all the people around you. It's kind of like depression, right? Like you could have all the people around you and all the support in the world, but it's not them. It's you that's going through something and just needs some time, like you said. And it's so lonely. I mean, I'm still a little lonely from it. You know, I have my social media, I have you know, you guys um, connecting these stories, but I still tell my husband that sometimes I feel a little lonely that, you know, we went through that and now we're in a pandemic. Like, I feel yeah. like, what I is I did this? my whole pregnancy in a pandemic. Yeah, I couldn't so you even went through everything. I had wow. a baby shower, you know, like, and then she was born in September. So there was a couple of months where it was kind of okay weather. So we kind of did some outdoor visits. Like my entire maternity leave was isolated in a house, bringing her to neuro, like the neurologist yeah. and, you know, the follow-up appointments and being in the hospital and, you know, I think another thing that people don't realize is the amount of grief that we have to process as yeah. parents. And like, it's both the immediate grief of like, I never got that like hospital picture, you know, like yeah. yep. picture I have of my baby is her intubated. Like, so yeah. I had to text everybody that picture, you know, yeah. everyone knew I was, I was going to be induced. So I'm getting texts the whole next day. Like, yeah. is she here? Is she here? How oh. are you? And like, the only thing I could share was a picture of my baby intubated in the yeah. NICU. And I'm like, yeah, she's here. You know, like there's the immediate grief of, yes. of all these moments that you imagine from the time you're a little girl. Yeah. And, I know. Then, and it's your first baby and yeah. it's that vision. Do I completely yeah. feel it? Like, I mean, it was so hard and, you know, I don't know how your family reacted, but culturally um, in Indian culture, like you don't share sad news or negative news. So my parents were even like, just don't share pictures. I'm like, why? Like when people ask me like your son's born and he's, again, he was intubated. He had the EG and the cap on and everything. Like, I'm like, well, this is our life. This is This is his life. You want me to hide this? Like, this is what happened to us. Like, yeah. I can't not share this. And it, part of sharing it is healing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just a cultural thing, but it's like, I had packed the matching outfit. I had Ooh. packed that robe. I had yep. done, I had visions of exactly, right. I'm a, you know, I had all these visions. I take care of babies in the nursery and I know, you know, these things happen and babies go home with their mom. And it was that reality that like my husband would have to take my son home without me because I was sick. Yeah. Like it was that reality that he would have to be sit in that wheelchair because they don't allow the person to stand with the baby. I think, you know, that like when you're wheeled yeah. out, the person has to sit and I'm like, how can my husband be the one to sit with my son? Like, I need to get out of this hospital. Like, it's unmet expectations, but it's stuff that we all should have that joy of, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not like it was unrealistic expectations. I think every mother has an expectation that they will take their baby home, that they yeah. will take a healthy baby home, take a baby home that they don't need to go to specialist visits, take a baby yeah. home where they got to do the picture. I don't think that's an outlandish expectation, but when it doesn't happen, that grief is overwhelming. Uh, and I think a lot so of people feel... 
I honestly feel this, that before this happened to me, I also am guilty of thinking that grief, real grief was if you had a loss, that that person was no longer there. I think that was a misconception that I personally also had until I went through this grief. And when I experienced this grief, I understood that grief is not just loss of a human being. It's not just someone passing away. It's truly the loss of something that you wanted, the loss of a healthy kid, the loss of a delivery you wanted. Grief isn't, there's no definition of, oh, it's this experience. It's no, if you think it's grief, it's grief. And no one can take that away from you. And I tell moms all the time, I'm like, if you're grieving something, whether it was a C-section when you wanted a vaginal, a medicated birth because you wanted an unmedicated, that is your grief and you are entitled to that grief. You know, you, you know, and it, it, it hurts. Like, I mean, cause when someone says to you, Oh, Sarah, what do you mean? Like your kid is healthy. Look at them. They're alive. Okay. Well, yes, they're <laughs> alive. I'm not denying the fact that my child's alive and I'm grateful, but please right. understand that there's so much more going through my grief right now than having an alive baby. Like I am grieving something that happened really bad to us. Like, and there's right. nothing wrong with that, you know? Absolutely. And, and I was grieving for the future. Like, yes, you know, when your baby has a brain injury. Yeah the future is really unknown. Yeah. And there's no answers. And all they could ever tell us was, you have to wait and see. And that was the hardest pill to swallow. Like, I remember when the neurologist pulled us aside that second night and was like, I'm concerned. I just like sat there numb, like grieving, like being at my daughter's wedding or having her talk to me or having her walk. And like, I know that like I was way getting ahead of myself, right? Like you really don't know, but like in that moment, like every dream I had of having a daughter just was like crushed, you know? So like you're grieving what happened to you in the moment. And like, you're also grieving like your life, your dreams of the future Mm -hmm. that you don't know what's going to happen. And like life is always uncertain. Like you're never going to know, but you know, I think when you have a baby, it's such a momentous occasion in your life. And like, it's such a turning point in your life, right? It's such a milestone. And when something happens where you don't know what's going to happen with your baby in the future, like we didn't know if she was going to live through the night, yeah, you know, yeah, we didn't, we didn't know if she was ever going to walk or talk. And, you know, I definitely was grieving and like, I was kind of like that for the first six months of her life, to be honest, until she started to really like meet her milestones and, uh, yeah. just so you know, she's doing great. She's doing, she's doing, she's doing, she's doing so, so good. Yeah. But like first six months of her life, like it was really hard for me to be present with her because I was so consumed with worry and like am I doing enough am I stimulating her enough is she gonna be able to do x y and z um so the first six months were really hard but when she was three months old she had a repeat MRI so her first MRI I don't think I said this indicated that she had a stroke in the corpus callosum Mm. area of her brain which Mm -hmm. is the part of the brain that connects both hemispheres and it basically is contributes to everything right like feeding speaking walking reading like everything that you do is communicated through the corpus callosum so like to hear and it was her entire corpus callosum was impacted by by the oxygen loss Mm -hmm. so like to hear that like it just it was so overwhelming um and then we had an mri done at three months old and the neurologist called us and was like um, so there's like no indication that anything ever happened. Wow. And we were like, what? And she was like, yeah, like it's a typical three month brain. Like there's no scar tissue. Isn't that amazing? Plasticity. Yeah. It's amazing. And like, you know, your story, like when it happens, you know, I've heard of people being in the NICU. I personally didn't know of anybody who had a baby in the NICU, but like 
most of what you hear about for NICU babies is like preemies and not that there's anything any less scary about that. But like, I just didn't know anybody who had gone through what I was going through and what the outcome could be. And, you know, the doctors can't promise you anything like they can't. So like, even if I was like, well, could she be okay? They're like, yeah, she could be okay. Like it was very, they were very hesitant to even give me that glimmer of hope that like she could be okay. So like seeing your story with Ryan gave me so much hope that like, oh my God, like she might walk one day. She might talk. She might, you know, not have any like major issues. Um, So that was like a huge, huge relief. But yeah, it was in that moment, like you just don't know. Oh, I mean, the hardest part for me was because I'm a pediatrician and I know all this stuff, right? I know strokes, I know seizures. I know how to be positive, but I also know that there's a reality that this may not happen. And I screamed in desperation of like, please tell me, you know, he's, and I think you heard that on my podcast episode, please tell me he's going to walk and say mama. Like I need, Mm -hmm. I need to know that. And again, they don't have any crystal ball and you literally are just waiting and waiting and waiting and figuring out how to engage with baby and figuring out what to look out for. And when is this going to be a concern? And then your anxiety goes crazy when they start refusing the bottle because Ryan refused the bottle and I, he was a great feeder and it was distraction related. Like it was more Mm -hmm. of like you said, behavioral related in terms of distraction versus a neurological issue. But I texted my neurologist and I was like, um, I need you to walk me off a ledge right now. Um, but that anxiety (laughs) is a real thing. And you said it perfectly, like that anxiety and that worry, it really takes you out of the ability to engage with your baby at a time Mm -hmm. when you want to be there and present. And that is huge. I mean, that is something that you can't, it's not like someone can tell you, oh, just, you know, just do it. It's like, it takes yourself to kind of get there and say, okay, I need to work with what I need to work on. And I only can look at what I look at now. And that's so easier said than done, right? I mean, I looked sure. at, I kept thinking about the future for months and I still think about the future and it's hard not to. And it's really hard to stay in the moment with the medical diagnosis. I mean, mm-hmm. the medical diagnosis throws everything out of um, out of whack because yes, anything can happen in our lives. We understand this, right? You You never know what your future holds, but when you have a medical diagnosis, you now say, okay, well, what are the outcomes? I don't know what I'm supposed to do, what's going to happen. But on the flip side, what gave me some solace is that because we had the medical diagnosis, I kept telling myself, we know what he had. I'm going to be extra attuned, extra alert mm-hmm. to things now, right? Like yeah. even more so, I, I probably would have done it had I, he not had the diagnosis, but like, you're going to just be extra. And that's good to be extra sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, would be like, your, um, what would be your sorry. final message for everyone listening? Like, you know, if they're going through something similar, if they're not, what would be your final message? Um... I think the biggest take home is like, you're not alone, even though it feels lonely. Yeah. And there's only a small community of us. You're not alone. Mm -hmm. Like when you're up at night pumping, just think of the other moms doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, You're not alone. Other people have gone through it. Like look at dear Nikki mama. Like they saved my life. Like they always happen to post something that just is so validating. It was like the only resource that was, so, so validating to me. And, you know, you can have a duality of emotion. They talk about that a lot. Like you can be extremely angry and have this immense grief about what happened. And you can also be grateful that your baby is alive. Like you don't have to feel guilty for feeling these emotions. And, you know, I felt that a lot. And sometimes I still do. Like in the beginning, I felt like so guilty for my anxiety because I felt like she was feeding off of it. And like, I didn't want to cause her any more harm. And you know, it's taken me a long time to just kind of accept that, like, I'm not over this yet. And that's okay. Like, I kind of put pressure on myself that like, 
by a year old, when she's a year old, I'm going to be better. And like, I'm not. And like, that's okay. So just remember that like, you're not alone. Stand up for yourself, advocate. Like if you have a gut feeling about something, like follow it and don't stop until you feel satisfied. Like it took months and months of me talking to anybody who would listen until we figured it out on our own and like got the solution to what we needed, at least for the bottle aversion. Um, but you know, like don't give up on that kind of, you know, gut feeling. Um, and you know, the NICU is so uncertain and you don't know what the future holds, but my daughter was a miracle. Like she truly was. Ryan is a miracle. All babies are miracles, but like these NICU babies really are miraculous. And you know, the baby's brain really is plastic. And like, we still don't know what the future holds, but like her recovery was just insane and it can happen. So like, if you need that sliver of hope that like it can happen, keep that hope. It can happen. And, you know, don't ever think that you're bond with your babies any less. Like, I was really nervous about that, that like, will she know me? Like, will we have a strong bond? Cause we also couldn't really breastfeed. That's a whole other story I won't get mm-hmm. into, but um, that's often difficult for babies who are in the NICU to have like a real breastfeeding journey. And I thought that like, we wouldn't have a strong bond. And I think that honestly, this situation made our bond even stronger. Like babies yeah. know, your baby oh, yeah. knows that you're there. Your baby yes. knows that you fought for them. Your baby, like that was probably the best thing that my best friend said to me, like, when I was so anxious, she was like, Aubrey knows that you're there. She knows yeah. your voice. She knows yes. your smell. Yes. She, yes. she knows she knows your touch. So yeah. like that was probably the, the best thing anyone could have said to me was that like she knows you. Um and your bond is not gonna be any less, if anything, it's gonna be stronger. Like I think that we have a great bond and she just she knows that I fought like hell for her. Yeah. And you did. And and you are going to find that that bond is going to continue to blossom into this amazing thing that is your bond, right? It's your special yeah. bond that is so unique to you and, and your daughter. I'm just like, and I'm so glad that you realized that. And it's so, you know, part of my journey on social is reminding mothers of that bond is created in such unique ways. And I experienced mm-hmm. that, right? Like, like you said, I was so distant with Ryan until he started smiling. I was afraid to get close to him. And I was afraid mm-hmm. because I was worried something would happen to him, right? Yeah. I was afraid You're always of getting waiting close. for the yes. shoe to drop. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was just waiting and I was, I was protecting myself. I didn't want mm-hmm. to get close to my own child. And then once he started smiling, once he started doing more developmentally is when I started to really start to bond with him. And now as a toddler, I mean, you're, you know, your daughter's <laughs> turning a year, you're going to literally, I mean, when, and I know it's going to happen for you, Sarah, she's going to say, mama, you're going to cry. You're going to, you're going to email me and I'm crying too. Ryan, Ryan started saying, Ryan walked at 10 months, but he didn't say mama until 20 months. Okay. Wow. He said mama once, like at one year, he said, dada, shy, like everyone else. Yeah. And then I, and finally he said Aww. mama. And now it's like the mama, like that just won't stop mamaing, And it's like <laughs> the best. He's like, he That's wakes amazing. up in the morning and he's like, mama. And I'm like, who's Aww. this Ryan? Mama. And I'm like, do you That's love amazing. mama? And he's like, mama, like he loves, and it's just music to your ears. It's going to happen. And Ugh, it can happen late. Wait. Like it's, it can happen to, you know, later, 20 months, two years. I don't know, but it's going to happen. And I know it will, you know, it may take some work to get there, but it brought me back to those awful nights in the NICU. And I turned to my husband and I was like, he's saying mama, like he's <laughs> saying what I had asked them. Is he going to say, is he going like, to say mama? Is, yeah. is he going to walk? And is he going to say mama? Like, that's what I asked. I'm like, is he going to chase Shiloh around? Like, that's what I asked the, my NICU team. I'm like, he needs to play with my dog. Like I have yeah. visions of him <laughs> chasing my dog right. in, the, in the yard. 
and he's getting there. You know, it took a lot of work since I'm so into development. It took a lot of intervention with me at home, like yeah. making sure my nanny was very aware of how I need to communicate and development and all of it. Like it was so vital to me that he got everything he could to have the best outcome for him. You know, it's not like compared to anyone else. It's literally, I wanted him to thrive on his trajectory. And I know your daughter too, but I appreciate you being on here. We could have talked of for course. so much longer. I know. <laughs> We're friends now. So if you yeah. ever, you need to email me and like keep me updated on her progress and your progress too. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. Awesome. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review. Share this episode with a friend. Share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, PedsDocTalkTV. We'll talk to you soon. You made it halfway through an episode, so you must be loving the show. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel where I share answers to all of the common topics submitted to me regarding child health, development, and debunking all that misinformation you hear online. My goal is for PDT to be a one-stop shop for your searching needs. Bye-bye late night Googling. So make sure to go to YouTube and search Peds Doc Talk TV. Hit that subscribe button and binge watch all the amazing episodes and episodes to come. Have suggestions for future videos? Make sure to chat in the community section on my YouTube channel.